Okay, so welcome back everyone. So quickly before to before beginning into the talk on Buddhist cosmology, which is if you thought the Mar- Marvel Cinematic Universe was colorful, we have far more color. I think I just wanted to speak to one question someone put privately in the chat. Thank you, Ajahn. You talked about contemplating on one's own death and letting go of loved ones during the meditation. Do you have any advice on how to contemplate death of loved ones and be with the emotions that arise and letting go? I find that contemplating on my own death does not bring up fear like that of a loved one of loved one does. Thank you. I think there's a few useful things to think about there. Um, and I think that's a very common, you know, it, it's something to work with. And I think a lot of us do. First, I think having a concrete, um, well, first it's worth mentioning a sutta. I think it's Majjhima Nikaya 5, the fifth sutta in the middle link discordances, which is, if a, bhikkhu, if a bhikkhu should wish, or if a practitioner should wish, Akankaya Sutta. And the Buddha says that if a practitioner should wish, may I be dear to my companions in the spiritual life, may they fulfill the precepts, uh, not neglect meditation, delight in empty huts, uh, develop meditation um, or samadhi. And I think there may be one more. But uh, and he goes on through a list, if a bhikkhu should wish blank, if a bhikkhu should wish blank. And one of them is, if a bhikkhu should wish, when my relatives departed, when my relatives have passed, may they remember me and it brighten their mind with faith. Let them fulfill the precepts, not neglect meditation, etc. And what I really take this as, as is a very explicit pointing of the Buddha to the fact that even if a loved one didn't understand exactly what our practice was about and thought we were strange or was blocked for whatever reason from communicating about that side of things by personality or view or distance, that there's a clarity and lucidity that can come after the body's been let go of in which they can see it very clearly and and it can affect them and your practice can have a really powerful effect on someone, even if there was a lot of distance during your life. And you read about near-death experiences, and this is a pretty common theme, is people's sudden clarity and spiritual insight and valuing of those near them who had been refuges of that kind. So that's helpful in one sense of just knowing that your bright heart and your practice could carry them, uh, even if it didn't in the life they were living at that moment in their incarnation as it was. The next thing I think is worth recollecting is um, the Buddha did say that there, you know, were, you can spread metta or dedicate merit to the dead. And if they're in a kind of nearby realm, then it can be received. And that's not some esoteric economy. When you dedicate merit, you do good and do it in the name of some someone. And 
you know, the idea is that if spirits do exist, then they can kind of uh, basically receive that intention. And they just, you know, it, it's inviting them to identify with good action. And that brightens the heart. It's like when someone tells you they did something good in your name, it feels good. And that's as simple as it is. Um, and uh, so knowing that most cultures have a way of dedicating merit to their dead, except for ours. And it's useful to do that. And one thing I really recommend is for the first seven days after someone has passed, lighting a candle in the morning and evening for them and spreading metta and doing it again in Thailand. You do it after a hundred days and after a year. It was interesting. I was at a monastery with a teacher named Ajahn Kalyano and this woman came up and said, my mother in Sri Lanka just passed. I keep having these dreams of her coming to me, shivering in ragged clothes, asking for food and clothes. And Ajahn Kalyano said, she's in, a, you know, she's in a preta state. You need to dedicate goodness, do good and dedicate it to her. And afterwards I came up to him and I said, I've read about this, but I've never seen something like this in person. And he said, this happens all the time. Um, so take it or leave it. But, but what I think it means is that you can trust that a brightness of heart can carry on to those even we don't see. And um, if not, uh, then I think it's uh, meaningful to, uh, what was I going to say? Just to realize that um, it changes our relationship to their memory to do these rituals, that sometimes you need ritual to kind of bring about closure. Um, and really, there's a story of Kafka and uh he saw a girl lose her doll in the park and he, the next morning there was a new doll on her, no, there's a letter on her doorstep and it was written, signed from her doll uh, from a different part of the country. Or uh, I think it was actually a few weeks later from a different country, like a travel log. And every few weeks there'd be a new letter from her doll traveling around. And then when she was graduating in high school, she found a new doll on her door um, a replacement. And years later, she found a little note clutched in its hand or in its pocket or something that said, you will lose everyone you love, but the love will always come back to you in new forms. And that's the beautiful side of not self is like these sankaras, these patterns of goodness are impersonal. So the goodness of a person carries on. And similarly, even if someone's passed, you can trust that the goodness of them carries through you and you're honoring them through their memory and your goodness that you put into the world ripples out as well. These sankaras move. Uh, and that's a really beautiful way to hold it, whether or not you believe in rebirth. Um, the final thing I'd just say is that, you know, or the two final things is sometimes you need to step back a little bit and just consider everyone your kind of brother and sister and birth aging and death. That's how Thai teachers refer to, to people coming to the monastery. They'll say, welcome sisters and brothers and birth aging and death. And that widening of vision can sometimes really help hold those we love that have passed in better stead. Um, and the final thing is like, I think for parents or people that you really, really love, sometimes you've got to almost lean into that flow of, that that open wound and transmute it into compassion. So, um, you know, 
if it's a raw wound that, that really won't, won't heal, maybe really considering you're kind of channeling the dukkha of, of many and, uh, really using it to give kindness to a world that is, you know, rife with loss. And, uh, there's a story of Frank Ostaseski who knew a woman whose toddler got hit in a road. And on the way back from the morgue, she said, this cannot break me. And how she kept it from breaking her was she channeled that hurt into action and became, she basically counseled other parents who lost their kids and who else could speak to their suffering like she could. So I think that's part of the Bodhisattva impulse can be to lean, to, to move through that dark valley of dukkha into kind of a grace. Uh, and yeah, that's part of the beauty of the first noble truth is it is somewhat, it's what binds us together, transpersonal. The bodies connect through pleasure. The heart connects in shared, you know, in some sense in the connection that can be catalyzed through shared dukkha. So I hope, I hope that, uh, address that a little bit. Um, as to the question about the turtle, um, the word is not coincidence. It's aditya, which is, means rare or exceptional. Um, I think it can mean coincidental, but it can also mean the other ones. And it comes from the root dar, which means to hold. So it's a negating dar. So something like not holding, um, it's not an exact translation etymologically, but I think it sort of just means exceptional. So it's very rare that that turtle hits the right spot. Um, okay. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Pudam dhamam sangam namasari. So now we get to talk about Buddhist cosmology. This is one of my favorite descriptions of uh, the Buddha gives of the different realms of the analogy. But before going into it, it's worth noticing, noting that the equation the Buddha gives for how experience manifests is idapachayata, uh, this, that conditionality. With the arising of this, there is the arising of that. With the cessation of this, there is the cessation of that. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. Which sounds both like strangely simple and also cryptic at the same time. But what it means is that two of those things are concurrent. So when this arises, that arises. Um, uh, basically like if you stick your hand in a fire, it burns automatically. Um, and then with the arising of this, there is the arising of that. And that's like uh, temporal. So you do something and later on it comes back at you. Or maybe it's the opposite way. But the point being that there's concurrent and, te- and uh, subsequent levels of conditionality. And that interplay means that it we live in a chaotic system is what it means. And one feature of a chaotic system is what's called scale invariance, which means that uh, any pattern playing out on a micro scale will play out in a large scale too. So um, 
you'll see this in a Mandelbrot set. It's like, or a fractal pattern. You'll see a certain pattern and then it repeats on a wider and wider and wider scale. Um, and you see this in meditation is you're one of the most beautiful insights people have in meditation is you're trying to control your breath and it's not working. And then suddenly you realize that how you are controlling your breath is how you've been trying to control your spouse. And it's scale invariance. Suddenly you realize this teeny pattern that seems so insignificant is repeated at every level of your life. And it's amazing because then if you soften that pattern in meditation, if you learn to give your breath a little bit more spaciousness and compassion, then soon you find you give your spouse a little more spaciousness and compassion. This is the power of scale invariance. The other reason it's significant, though, is that the manifestation of the mind can um, uh, manifest internally, but it repeats on a macrocosmic scale. Scale invariance means that the mental states we embody in our own internal experience day to day in the Buddhist framework uh, manifest on a vast cosmic scope as beings. And what's so amazing there is the Buddha very clearly maps on these realms to mind states. And um, he says they do exist. Um, but uh, what's so useful is that even if we don't believe in them, they give these great analogies for our minds and our different patterns. Uh, one meditation Longpur Sumedha recommends is imagining your different mental states as different breeds of dog. So, you know, you have your Great Dane mental state, you have your little frightened Chihuahua internally, you have your Rottweiler. Um, you can do something similar here with noticing when you're in a Deva, an angel state, uh, what is being a hell being look like? What is a Preta, a hungry ghost look like? So it's this beautiful uh, imagery. Um, that you can use, uh, but it also uh, reaches up into the highest realms of concentration and it's fascinating to go into. So by encompassing mind with mind, I understand a certain person thus. This person so behaves, so conducts himself, has taken such a path that on the dissolution of the body after death, he will reappear in a state of deprivation in an unhappy destination in perdition in hell. And then later on, with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, I see that on the dissolution of the body, after death, he is appeared in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, in hell, and is experiencing exclusively painful, racking, piercing feelings. Suppose there was a charcoal pit deeper than a man's height, full of glowing coals, without flame or smoke, and then a man scorched and exhausted by hot weather, weary, parched, and thirsty, came to a path going in one way and only, and directed to that same charcoal pit. Then a man with good sight on seeing him would say, and so on. So hell is compared to a pit of coals. Uh, in this case, um, with the dissolution of the body, he will reappear in the animal realm. Such was a cesspit. Uh, suppose there was a cesspit. So uh, animal realm is compared to a cesspit. The realm of hungry ghosts, which many of you will know are often pictured with teeny pin, 
uh, needlepoint mouths and gigantic bellies, always hungry but unable to uh, ever be satiated, is compared to a tree growing on uneven ground with scanty foliage, casting a dappled shadow, and then a man scorched and exhausted by hot weather, weary, parched, and thirsty, came by a path going in one way and only directed to that same tree, and exclusively experiences exclusively or just painful feeling. Um, human beings is compared to a man scorched and exhausted coming to a uh, tree with thick foliage and deep shade. A person going to the heavenly realms, the devas, is compared to a man going to a mansion, well-adorned, comfort, comfortable. And then nibbana, full awakening, is compared to a man scorched and parched coming to a pond with clean, agreeable, cool water. And then um, and experiences exclusively pleasant feelings. So this is from the Maha, I think Mahasi Hananda Sutta, the Greater Discourse on the Lions War, Majimani Kaya 12. And it's such a fascinating set of analogies. Um, and it overlays very simply the 30, I believe 32 realms of existence that there are in Buddhist cosmology up to the Brahma realms. It overlays the sensual spheres. Uh, we'll get into the Brahma realms later. But first, there is hell in Buddhist concepts. I think there's actually Ajahn Sona speculated that Dante's Inferno was just Dante getting a hold of the Petavatu, the description of the hell realms from the Buddhists via the Silk Road and basically writing a poem about it. So there definitely is hell realms. They're really interesting to look at in terms of their depictions. Um, the Buddha describes some of them, uh, but this idea of heat, of burning, um, or of darkness, of beings curled in on each other, on themselves, and not knowing there's even other beings nearby. And that experience of a hellish mind state being so familiar to us, the burning of anger, for example, um, uh, or the darkness, or the sense of aloneness, of being curled and crushed into on, onto ourselves, the Buddha says that beings in the hell realms, when there's this sort of uh, light that flashes through the world at the arising of a Tathagata, I think it's the hell realms uh, or the states in between the realms where the beings suddenly look up in the new light they've never seen and say, oh, there's other beings here because they've never seen them before. So this sense of isolation and just noticing that mind state, when, when are we in a hellish mind state? The animal realm is interesting. We conceive of animals as we really romanticize them in the West. You know, what wouldn't it be great to be reborn as this or that? Um, but animals live in constant fear and focus on food. And that it's, it's the Buddha compares it to a cesspit. So uh, there is this idea that when we're scheming for food, that's an especially animalistic rebirth and you shouldn't feel too bad. We all do this, um, et cetera. But it's useful to know, uh, to picture that, like when a mind state comes up that's obsessing, uh, kind of think what would that being look like in you? What would it look like if you could see that mind state embodied, uh, you know, as, as an animal? And can you let go of it for a more beautiful one? The hungry ghosts, the pretas, uh, 
compared to a hot man or a scorched parched man coming to a barren tree. So the pretas are characterized, these hungry ghosts, by obsession. Um, there's a great story in the Thai forest tradition of these monks coming to an empty house where they wanted to stay the night. And there's a, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a great story is uh, uh, the monks were all different heights. So there was a ghost, they say, while the monks were sleeping, all of their feet were out of alignment because they were all different heights. So the ghost went up, uh, along the end of them and pushed them all into alignment. But then their heads were all out of alignment. So the ghost went to the other side and pushed their heads all into alignment. And then their feet were out of alignment again. So it went back around and pushed their heads into or their feet into alignment. And I think we've all been in exactly that state before, that obsessive, doubting, compulsive drive, the hungry ghost rattling around. I find it's a very useful um, mind state to put an image to um, what is insatiable or when we're just kind of thinking about the same thing over and over rattling around. The very interesting thing here is um, that the next realm is the human realm. And that's compared to that same parched man coming to a rich tree filled with foliage. And that's a fortunate rebirth to look at all the difficulty and tragedy we have in our world, but understand that in a Buddhist conception, this is an unbelievably fortunate rebirth because we have the chance to practice and we experience pleasurable feeling too. And in the Buddhist conception, the human rebirth is one of the most, uh, you know, blessed rebirths because we, the immediacy of pleasure and pain concurrent with the presence of deep cognition and mindfulness and the potential for practice. And sort of like we're half angel, half animal. And that combination, if held with right view, is such a potent ground for insight. So understanding, no matter, you know, it's a real blessing. And if we can turn towards even the dukkha in our lives as a gift, because it gives us a chance to practice, that's a profound uh, shift in the heart and perhaps the primary one in the Buddhist path is uh, turning towards dukkha as something to be comprehended rather than something to be run from. And that point is driven home by the devas, the angels, which the Buddha compares to a mansion. But the angels are careless. And it's a common trope in the suttas that the angels become heedless very easily. And I believe the Buddha says when a monk or a Buddha visits the devas, they flee into their rooms and fear overtakes them. And they think, oh no, we thought we were permanent, but we too are impermanent. And there's this idea that when the devas, they're very long lived, these radiant beings, but um, when they near their death, uh, five signs appear, their seat becomes hot. So they can't sit as much. They start to smell, which never happens to devas. So the, all the other devas start to avoid them. They begin to get hot in their body. I think their flower garlands fade and something else happens where they know they're going to, to, to die. Um, and just this idea that in some ways, the fact that we are so frail and fragile and our realm is so broken 
is exactly what makes it such a powerful place to develop this path. And the David rebirth on the surface, you know, seeming beautiful, uh, in some ways it's a mirage because it will disappear in the end. Something to note here is that all the other realms are very different images, but the hungry ghost realm is a mirror image or a, a shadow of the human realm. Both are a tree, but the hungry ghost realm is a barren tree, whereas the human realm is a, is a sort of uh, lush tree. So the idea is those two realms are very close. And that's why they say that you can dedicate merit to the dead that are in the hungry ghost realm, but not to other realms. Um, and the final image is of Nibbana and that's the, the pond, the oasis. Sorry, I'm sick. Um, and, uh, appropriately for a talk on birth, aging and death. So it's worth noting that in every one of these other realms, the man hungry or parched, starving for water, he doesn't find what he needs. There's no water under the tree. There's a bit of shade, but that's it. There's no water in the house. The only place he actually finds satiation is in Nibbana, in the pond. And I think that's quite significant. These images, as so many of the Buddha's analogies, you can tell they come from the mind imbued with samadhi because they are far deeper than they seem on the first glance. Now, the devas are important to point to because the Buddha really singled these beings out as an object of recollection. He said we should recollect the devas, the angels. And how one does that is one contemplates, and this is in the Giri Mananda Sutta in the Anguttara 10s. I think it's AN 10.11 or 10.12. Um, the numerical discourses and one recollects whatever faith, virtue, generosity, learning and discernment those beings had that I too have in me. And Davis is etymologically related to the word, the root div, which can mean playful, but it also can mean radiance, light, radiant ones. And once I asked my teacher, I said, you know, um, I said, look, if, if I see a deva, I'll, I'll ordain for life. Like, just can you, maybe you have a straight line to some odd long pour or something. And he said, look, you see devas every day, all around you, all these beings. Um, and I think, you know, it's true the Buddha did acknowledge the existence of these beings, but looking at the bright beings around us and that, that brightness um, as a sign of deva, of the deva mind, um, and particularly of those qualities of uh, faith, virtue, generosity, discernment, uh, learning, that these are the qualities that, that effectively form a deva. Um, and those are qualities we can very concretely cultivate in the heart. And we can look to, and, and that sense of light So I feel like this is overwhelming for folks, but I put plenty here about the different Deva realms. There's a great story of Mahamogalana going to visit Saka and terrifying him. 
But I think here we can briefly touch on the Brahma realms. And many of you will know um, the Brahma Viharas, uh, the four boundless abodes, the abodes of the Brahmas, effectively. And they're, uh, you know, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. And the idea is each one of them aligns, or each one of, sorry, that the Brahmas have these spacious, broad, loving minds that are bright, radiant. And um, that uh, each one of these actually concretely corresponds to the four jhanas. Um, so the first Brahma realm, the lowest, corresponds to the first jhana, which is a deep state of concentration. And uh, they move up through those jhanas. And there's a few things to note here. One is that the Brahmas don't, they can't be trapped by Mara. It's worth noting that within those Deva realms, there's several realms, uh, including one which is Tusita, which is uh, imbued with compassion particularly. But at the apex of the sensual realms is the realm of Mara. And Mara in the Buddhist conception is uh, a rebel, a rebel prince who hooks all those below him into samsara. And he's a fascinating figure because he's a very high level deva. And I asked Ajahn Anand, my, my teacher about Mara once, and uh, he said, look, Mara is the part in you that co-ops with ego, any good action. You know, someone comes to the monastery and wants to offer an offering, but they want to do it in public and be seen above others. It's that pride um, at least that's one of Mara's hooks. Mara also hooks us other ways. But it's worth noting that all the devas below Mara, some of them are extremely refined beings. They cultivate generosity. They are imbued with these beautiful minds. But they're still below, Bra they're still below Mara because pride can still get them. And it's useful seeing that even our most pure intentions can be taken over by Mara, by pride, in that subtle way. And really leaning against Mara uh, in the sense of, if you want to, you know, do something in public, make a point of doing it in private. If you, you know, see a conversation going on without you and want to be seen, what would it mean to go against the grain, uh, agare contra, as the Christians say, uh, swimming against the stream, as the Buddha says, and just be silent and people will be baffled. Um, and a subtle majesty manifests on the other side of that. Uh, but really kind of going against Mara's winds and keeping an eye on that. And many will know that when Mara manifests in the suttas, what one says is, I see you, Mara. Just knowing Mara's there is sometimes enough. And Mara then, the phrase goes, hung his head, dejected. Uh, and I think then he disappears into a puff of black smoke. And Mara's everywhere in the suttas. And um, just being aware of that presence uh, will, you know, that influence. Um, and this doesn't necessarily have to be conceived of all the time as an external being. It can just be that part of us which 
is afraid of the unknown, is afraid of what we would become if we let go of what we're clinging to. And so clings. Um, this is Mara. And just saying, I see you, Mara. And sometimes you can be like, you know, uh, you can, you don't have to be always polite with Mara. You can be like, go somewhere else, really. It's, it's time. Um, but the Brahma realms and the concentration, uh, these unified states of mind, they are beyond Mara. Mara is below them. And the, these radiant minds are just useful to look at because if we think of, we hear the word concentration or jhana and we think of these like, it can be easy to conceive of this very tight, small state of mind. But the Brahma mind is vast. It expands over world systems. It holds many things within it. And to see that, uh, to use that as a metric uh, for what the heart that is unified should feel like. Um, there should be a sense of brightness, light, care, spaciousness. At least that sh- that can be one of the aspects of it. And um, then to see that the Buddha mapped those Brahma realms onto the jhanas with, uh, many of you will know the first jhana has this quality called Vitaka Vichara, directed thought and evaluation. And the Buddha said the first Brahma realm has these Brahma's retinue. They're kind of these assistants of Brahma who talk to him. So there's uh, dialogue. And in the suttas, the only Brahmas that ever come speak to the Buddha are those of the first realm because they're the only ones that can speak. The next Brahmas up, um, they don't have that ability to talk. It's just them. There's no speech because there's no Vitakavichara in the second jhana. But the second jhana has piti and sukha, uh, rapture and pleasure, and the Brahmas of the second jhana are described, I think in the commentaries, but it's still fascinating, as having a light like a candle flame, like a torch. So it flutters. Uh, rapture, pity is dynamic. It moves. The third jhana Brahmas, the third level, they are said to just have light like the radiant moon. And that's a still silent light. And that's because in the third jhana, pity, rapture, this dynamic pleasure disappears and what's left is sukha or ease and that's completely still like the moon and the fourth jhana brahmas uh it's described i don't think at all almost um but that's equanimity so there's a ton to cover there but i think holding it as First, these realms that the Buddha did speak about and acknowledged as uh, places that the mind went. The Buddha said, you know, the Buddha loved analogies, uh, but he said, the mind is so quick, I can't even think of an analogy for how quick it is. And he said, however variegated the animal realm is, the mind is more variegated than that. So this idea that the mind can be in so many different manifestations and through one day, how many of these realms do we move through? How many times are we a hell being a hungry ghost and more? And just having this imagery is so helpful. Like what does it look like when the mind is imbued with that Deva quality and how is that co-opted by Mara? What does it look like when we're in that hungry ghost obsessive realm? 
What does it look like when we're scheming after food or fear like an animal? And just having compassion for these parts of us, like they're all, you know, if you need to invite them in and offer them a cup of hot cocoa, that's okay. But just, this is part of us. We span and have spanned the whole realm. And every day we hit many of these realms, although perhaps not the Brahma realms as often. Um, but it's uh, a fascinating world to explore and to know about. So I think that's plenty. Okay. Okay, how are people doing? Was that a, that was quite a lot, right? Um, thumbs up, thumbs sideways for your energy. Okay, good. We're all feeling like Dave is our energetic animals at least. Um, so people feel free to take a brief break if you want, but we'll um, just continue into a meditation for about 10 minutes. And I was going to do a guided sit. Um, maybe I'll still do that, but I think we also just couldn't hurt to have a little bit of break from talking. So we'll sit for about 10 minutes and people can also feel free to turn off their Zoom screens, get up and stretch your legs. We'll have a final brief talk and then Q&A and then wrap up.
Okay. So just to answer a few questions that came up in the chat before the next talk, and maybe we can actually take a, a brief break for questions now. Where do Asuras fit into this? And the Nagas and other beings like that? Yes, question about Nagas are always fun. So for those who don't know, um, I wasn't able to expand on, with these 32 realms, you have the hell realms, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, the human realm, all these are about six sensual heavens of ascending order, Mars at the top, the four Brahma realms, the formless realms, and then you have something called the Sudavasi, which are the pure abodes, which are places where the non-returners go, anagamis, uh, basically places of practice where any being reborn there is destined to attain awakening. They're a very special place, barely described in the suttas. Um, but there's all sorts of fun resonances to draw out of the space between the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, and the highest deva realm, which I didn't get to. So one thing is the asuras um, are described, and these are called uh, the titans, is their rough equivalents. One very interesting thing is most of the Buddhist cosmology will map onto uh, cosmologies you find across the world. So for example, there's beings called uh, garudas, which are these gigantic bird spirits, and they map onto the uh, Native American Thunderbird very well. Um, the Asuras are beings pictured as always fighting. They are very angry. And I think they're actually roughly equivalent to the Norse Valhalla, but the, uh, the Norse took them as that to be heaven, whereas the Buddhists consider it to be below the human realm. Um, so right below the human realm is the Asuras. And much of this details from the commentaries. Uh, the Buddha was, didn't describe a lot of these, uh, but um, he did describe some of them. But in the commentaries, the Asuras, the story of them is great. They're sort of milling about at the bottom of this mountain. And then um, every now and again, they see the devas up at the top of the mountain and Mount Sinaru, similar to Mount Olympus, maybe identical. And they realize that they are not, in fact, in heaven and rush up the mountain like ants, the commentary says, and do battle with the devas. And um, this is the Titans versus the Olympians, the Asuras versus the devas. And the Buddha does speak about it. The beautiful mental uh, analogy is just how when we're in a state of anger, it's so seductive. Perhaps self-righteous anger might be the most seductive mind state uh, in existence almost. The Buddha says, anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned root. So the fact that the Asuras think they're in heaven is fascinating to me. And then when they realize they're not, how they rush up. The Nagas are snake serpentine beings, water spirits. Um, they're alternately portrayed as slightly mischievous, but also protectors of the Dhamma. Um, they're considered in the animal realm somehow, but they're also spirits. So I don't know where they fit in exactly. There's a whole class of being called the Bhuma Devas. So those are like tree spirits or, you know, earth Devas. So spirits that a lot of cultures speak about, um, the Celtic, the Sith people in the Celtic tradition, um, 
any earth spirits. Uh, those are the Buma Devas. Uh, so anyways, there's all sorts of really fun things you can kind of run around with in this. Uh, and, you know, they usually don't get spoken to, but uh, it is interesting. John, Joni, requesting a resource for how jhanas, I think the typo is genes, genes in Brahma, but I think jhanas and Brahma Viharas linked together in the way you were speaking. This is a new topic for me. Yeah, um, what you can do is Google uh, Puna Damo, and I put this in the handout, is a link to the series of interviews Ajahn Punadamo did with Ajahn Sona about Buddhist cosmology and go to the Brahma realms and he'll speak to these resonances. He also has a book called The Buddhist Cosmos, which draws out these parallels beautifully. What's very interesting is actually the higher levels of sensual heaven, you begin to approach these levels of the sensual heaven, which are kaleidoscopic. Uh, it's called the realm of the beings that delight in the creation of others which is very cryptic, but basically it's these beings who things just manifest out of nowhere for them and are created by the devas below them. And it's this fascinating irony where they've achieved the apex of samsara. They're at the top. And ironically, because whatever they want, it's there without them almost even thinking about it. But ironically, their life is completely pointless. I mean, they're basically just zombies uh, of sensual you know, imbibement, uh, sensual consumption. And to see that that's the apex of this samsaric path without the spiritual goal is that place of just uh, complete uselessness. Um, also interesting is that as people move up into deep states of concentration, often they'll pass through a, a period of intense kind of colors or sensations, like the person who was talking about feeling almost swaddled in darkness. Um, and I've always been interested in the parallel between those higher sensual heaven realms being very kaleidoscopic and almost uh, like a lot of strange visions and sensations and what happens to a meditator as they ascend into calm uh, past those places. So there's all sorts of fascinating analogies to be drawn out from this cosmological model. It's, it's the mind instantiated in reality or, or in in imagery and reality so it's worth looking into finally uh Ajin, can you speak to the type of fear where you're waiting for the other shoe to drop to the gnawing certainty that it will happen and living in the anticipatory anticipatory fear state i'd say that if death recollection is bringing that up for you uh it's not the right recollection in the sense of fear Fear is generally, you should, the Buddha said there's five kinds of loss, health, wealth, relatives, right view, and morality. And he said, of those five, the first three are trivial. Only the last two are actually great losses. We will lose our relatives. We will lose our possessions. We will lose our health. Uh, and in a sense of those things, fear is not wholesome. What we should, the reason fear is not unequivocally a bad emotion in the Buddhist conception is because we should be afraid of losing our morality. We should be afraid of losing our right view. We should be heedful, not in an unwholesome obsession, obsessive way, but we should be sober about the situation. Um, 
So to say that if a death recollection is bringing up fear uh, in that sense of like, oh God, um, that's probably not a wholesome fear at all. And it might be better to cultivate loving kindness or breath meditation to center yourself. Um, when I was speaking about my period where that was coming up a lot, uh, it was a hard time, but, and I, I, but it was natural. Like when I began to really value how near death was and what a precious moment this was, um, it was an important lighthouse, but it's one lighthouse among many. And it's one that I couldn't remain fixated on. So I think the quality of the heart should be warm, light, and spacious most of the time. And if that's not coming through these meditations, then I move to a different recollection. Okay. Great. And uh, I think someone raised their hand. Leslie, we'll do one question before the talk. Hi, I... Thank you for your your presentation. I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, my question is related to wish for non-existence that can come up with the death contemplation because it feels so pleasant not to be pulled into attachments, um, get temporary relief, and then you think, oh, well, this, yeah. sounds, this seems good. <laughs> yeah. So if you could comment on that. Yeah. The um, the sequence leading to liberation is often spoken of as seclusion, dispassion, cessation, uh, nibbana, awakening. Uh, oh, and relinquishment is is in there often. And um, what you can notice there is those words denote. Uh, seclusion, for example, that recollection of death secluding you from all these desire, from all these worries, the fact that that room has no doors and just the sense of lightning there, that there is a place to get space and centeredness and how if held skillfully, that can lead to this letting go and that sense of the hand opening and realizing that when you've let go of what you've been holding, you're not left with nothing. The palm fills with light. And that takes a while to see because we're so used to the taste of the world that it takes a while for the tongue to become sensitive to the more subtle notes of happiness. It's like the taste of fresh snow. But um, it's if the death recollection is leading to that sense of relief, letting go, putting down a burden, that's wholesome. And it really could indicate it, there's a place for that in our lives and trusting that <clears throat> if that is coming up with that wholesome sense of peace, of letting go of relinquishment, that, you know, if you rest in that for a time, you will return back into, you know, you'll come back into the world, into your day and be more energized and loving and caring for it. But uh, trusting the heart in that, um, but you're right. If you, uh, you're referencing vibhava tanha, desire to not become, it's one of the three kinds of craving. Um, it's worth noticing those types of craving 
uh, bhavatana, craving to become, and vibhavatana, craving not to become. And both holding close to your chest and holding at arm's length are both holding. So just to become sensitive, and this just occurs over time, to that note of dukkha, to constriction, to violence. And the whole path is just refining that. And as you enter into a new state, there's a brightening, a lightening. It's like walking into a bright room. Your eyes take a while to adjust. And similarly, like it seems pretty good. But then once you've cultivated that space and been there for a while, um, you begin to notice the dukkha and you apply the Four Noble Truths again and you let go of the, say, subtle desire not to become that's even in that state and things get even more refined. Just as once you've been in a bright room for a time, you start to notice some of the dirt and uh, decide to clean it up. So noticing if that sense of pushing away is coming up, uh, of desire not to become, but also trusting the heart. If it feels largely wholesome and restful, that's good. And you might just need more of that in your life. And it, it can be healing. Like that sense of healing and nourishment is something we're so starved. We don't realize how starved we are for, for nourishment. So yeah, trust that movement of the heart and become, but do keep an eye on if it's angling towards aversion, in which case, yeah, cultivating metta uh, for yourself and uh, noticing the sense of aversion of vibhavatana. Did that help at all? Mm. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Okay. I think we have one more talk, so we'll keep it a bit shorter. But Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Gurudang damang sangang namasami Okay. So the final talk we'll do is on body contemplation. And this is one of my favorites. The Buddha says, anyone who has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body includes all of the skillful qualities that play a part in realization. Anyone who brings into their mind the great ocean that includes all of the streams that run down into it. In the same way, anyone who's developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body includes all the skillful qualities there are that play, that play a part in realization. It's from the Kayagata Satisutta, Mindfulness of the Body Discourse. The Buddha really singles out body contemplation in the suttas. And for example, the first passage of the chapter in the Samyutta Nikaya on liberation is references the body as the path to the deathless. It's so key. And it's really under, it's not spoken to in the West for, it's just way less romantic to tell people to contemplate their spleens than it is to tell them to cultivate loving kindness. But it does a great disservice because not only that khanda, that aggregate of the body, you read through the suttas and 
through the Terigata and the Terigata, the verses of the elder monks and nuns. And so many of their enlightenments or their stream entry experiences were predicated on breaking through that khanda, that aggregate, seeing through the body. Um, it's, you just cannot underestimate or overestimate, sorry, you cannot overstate its importance after you read those verses. Um, and in the Thai forest tradition, the uh, descriptions of the great teachers of their stream entry experiences uh, and often of full enlightenment is completely based around breaking through this khanda, seeing through it. It provides us a tool to deal with lust, which is really important. Like, how do you cut off lust when you're feeling it towards someone that it's not appropriate for? It's a route to compassion. Um, the Buddha says we should, you know, monks look on women as your sisters, as your mothers, as your daughters. And likewise, I assume if when he'd been talking to the bhikkhunis, he would have said something to the effect of look at men as you would look at your brothers, your fathers, your sons. So to not, you know, how Ajahn Panyavado said 90% of what we judge people by when we first meet them is their body. And what a kindness to be able to look at someone not for the body. And we can say that intellectually, but our attachment is so deep that until we've really started to look at the body with a calm mind, we don't know how deeply attached we are. It's interesting. Be oh, and just to clarify, body contemplation is not cultivating negative body image. Negative body image is looking at your own body compared to others' bodies and seeing your own body as less attractive. Uh, a suba, body contemplation, just means not beautiful. Uh, so what it means is just looking at all bodies as these strange constructs of flesh and blood and bone and calcium. And they're all equally bodies. There's nothing too special about it. Body contemplation appropriately developed should lead to letting go of negative body image based upon comparison. And what is interesting is as you cultivate this practice, you really do begin to see through a bit more through the veil of others' forms. And you can see their, their, their chitta, their brightness shine through despite that veil of the body, what the, the Christians call the mantle of clay. Uh, it's, it's such a beautiful practice. It needs to be held carefully because if uh, the Buddha describe or the commentaries describe six different kinds of personality type, but three of them are based upon the, well, resonant with these uh, main defilements of uh, greed, hatred, and, and delusion. And greed types, if the first thing you notice when you walk into a room is what you like, greed types, body contemplation can be very good for. But aversive types, it can be very, uh, it's very powerful. And you might wake up the next day really grumpy. And just to take note of that. And if you're, <clears throat> if you're an aversive type, having this as a tool is good. But if you find it's leading to dark mind states, then it's probably best to stick with metta or breath or something else. Um, another thing that's useful to note is that uh, the body contemplation, the mind that's calm can see clearly. So 
how body contemplation is taught and it's taught constantly in Thailand in a way that it's hard to overstate how much our teachers stress this. These are the first five meditation objects were given as when we ordain is hair of the head, hair of the uh, body, nails, teeth, skin, contemplate the wrappings, the external parts of the body. <clears throat> um, sorry, I, I'm, I'm a bit sick. Um, but uh, this, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, slipped my mind. So it's, a really key practice um, and uh, oh yeah I remember when the mind is calm it can see it clearly uh, so how one approaches it is you bring the mind to as much calm as you can uh, rest in the in a calm place with the breath and then once the mind begins to move not in a distracted way but just because it's it's kind of powerful it's got enough energy then, and it's sort of unstoppable, like you just don't want to go back to your samatha, your tranquility object. That's when you direct it to contemplate the body. And it can be a very active contemplation. But the mind that's rested is powerful. It's like uh, a train that stops and suddenly you can see the landscape, whereas when the train is moving, everything's rushing past. And so it'll have this afterglow from the calm and it'll be able to see truth clearly. And so from the calm mind, you begin to contemplate in the ways that we'll talk about. And suddenly you'll see very clearly that this body is not what you thought it was. And it's so interesting because in our culture, um, we understand that we're deluded about death, that if we really understood our mortality, we would change things. We have no idea about our delusion about the body in general. It's so deep um, that one of the most impressive moments in a practice is the sudden moment when someone realizes oh my god like this isn't me it's such a profound moment of what we call bhavanamaya panya wisdom resulting from insight from practice it's also useful because during a day usually you'll sit meditation and then go about your daily life and that samadhi energy kind of bleeds out into the world but if you're on lengthy retreat that samadhi energy can just keep building up until you're vibrating with it. And there's nowhere for it to go. It's like the glass is full. And time and again, for me, on retreat, I'll hit that point. And then where it goes is body contemplation. As you bring to mind one of these contemplations and the mind just wants it because it wants to pour its energy into something wholesome, insight. And it, it's kind of the missing other foot. Like, Many people in the West on retreat, they're hopping on one foot because they don't have this body contemplation. But if you do have it, then the samadhi builds up, you contemplate the body, you have this sense of brightening and lightening and letting go, and then you can return to your samatha, your tranquility object, and cultivate calm again. And it's that this dynamic back and forth that leads to increasing insight and clarity. So... The ways that the Buddha recommended contemplating the body is first looking through the 32 parts, which I've uh, listed here, um, looking through the elements, uh, earth, air, fire, water, and going through the charnel ground contemplations, which are looking or imagining bodies in various states of decay. So 
we can go through these. Uh, with the 32 parts, what you do is once that calm mind has begun to move again, you <clears throat> bring to mind a few different parts on this list and see which one kind of catches that powerful mind's attention. So really useful ones are the bones. The bones almost always work for people. Um, and then you contemplate, and that's a very organic term, but it basically means you, I'm having some light here, sorry. You try to, uh, you almost run through a movie in your head or a phrase or even feeling it in your body. So you can think, you can imagine the bones in your arm, crumble them into dust. And uh, in your head, you could say something like bones, stone, bones, stones. It's just calcium. It's just calcium. You could imagine your spine, your vertebrae as a set of river rocks laid on top of one another and understand that there's no difference between that calcium and the calcium out in the river. Um, you can realize, and this merges with the elemental contemplation, that every bone in your body has been earth and every piece of solid uh, material you touch has probably been the bones of previous animals bound into the earth. Um, you can just feel the bones in your arm internally. You can say a phrase like, this is not you. This is not you. You can clack your teeth together a little and just feel how you can suddenly feel the skeleton, feel the bo hip bones on the cushion. Um, and basically find one of these that feels right. I'll often crumble a bone in my head again and again. And if the mind finds one that's kind of fits, it's interesting, it's seeing something, just keep with that, repeat it. And then if it kind of dries up, then you move to a different one. Maybe you want to use a phrase for a while. But what it should lead to is not a sense of darkening or fear, but this lightening of the mind. And that's what you want to aim for. That's a good sign. Um, other things you can contemplate are uh, just this body is constantly oozing oil. Contemplate the skin, the hair. What happens if you don't wash this skin for a day for two days for a week it starts to smell ooze it's dirty we're oozing out of all these orifices our hair what happens if you don't wash that uh, uh another thing to contemplate is the fact that everything you see of another's body is dead um the skin is dead skin uh, if it were live skin it would be unbelievably painful the thin film of skin over the top is all dead cells the eyes are even dead. They just look moist because they're, they just look alive because they're moist. You can think of that. Um, blood could be a useful thing to recollect. Uh, hair, you know, one indicator of our delusion is the fact that if one of our hairs falls into a soup, suddenly the soup is disgusting. Or if you spit into your own soup, why would that be gross? It's your own spit. It's in your mouth. You're just, you know, but in those moments, you can see that there's something we're not seeing. And if you look at this with a calm mind, there's a good chance you'll have a moment where you just suddenly see clearly, this is not me. And it, it's profound. Um, and it gets rid of a lot of the fear of death because that you didn't even know you were holding to. And it undercuts every defilement because they're all wound into the body in a way you don't realize um, we love in the West these high-minded koans, like what was my face before I was born? But we forget that body contemplation rips apart the sense of self in this nitty-gritty way that's so powerful. It's, it's an unbelievably powerful practice if used correctly and wisely.
I think one indicator for me of how attached you are to the body is the fact that when a mosquito lands on you and bites you, uh, there's, you can sort of feel the, the, the boundary of your attachment to the body. Just as a, like, how dare, how dare it? And just noticing that, like, oh, there's something going on here that I'm not seeing. The next is the elements and we're running out of time. So I'll be fast, but this isn't sort of a medieval way of looking at the body, uh, but rather this is just how intuitively the mind divides things up. You have the solidity, the earth element, you have the liquidity, the blood, the phlegm, and then you have the fire element, which is the heat and the air element, which is the movement. Um, and this is, this is a very powerful contemplation. I know senior teachers who this is all they talk about. They say, look, it's all just earth, air, fire, water. And just to, see that the earth in you is no different than the earth out there. Your body has mixed into the earth and has grown out of the earth and has replaced every cell by the earth every seven years. And all the earth around you is the bones of other dead animals thousands of times over, probably. Um, and just to even, you can imagine that, you can say in your head, bones, stone, bones, calcium. The same with the blood. It's rainwater. It's ocean water. All the liquid around you, you see has probably been the blood of other animals at some point. You are the earth. And this can seem like a harsh contemplation, but I find that if you hold it well and imagine the body fading in death in a forest grove, giving up the earth element back to the earth, giving up the water element back to the river and the rain, there's a sense of peace because you realize you are no different. And um, this body was never yours to begin with. And that's a good sign. So, you know, and then you have this experience sometimes where, you know, one can wake up and realize that the body and the bed that the body's lying on and everything around you, it, it's no different. It's all the same. It's all earth. So it's, it's almost impossible to sort of describe, but this is a really good realm of exploration. And it's a very good tool for cutting off lust. And it's a powerful tool for insight. So uh, I hope that didn't turn anyone off too much, but we'll end things now. And uh, we didn't get to charnel ground, but that's all right. So we have five minutes. I'm sorry I went so long. Do we have any questions while we have this time? And uh, for the record, in the handout, I put a bunch of resources for body contemplation. There's a great PDF called Bag of Bones, which has all these amazing uh, kind of phrases to go through. It's it's quite quite enjoyable, actually. And also to say that the Buddha praised cultivating, being you know taking care of the body as a vehicle for our practice and using it in terms of the subtle body to develop pleasure and insight, but not becoming attached to the form itself. It's just a vehicle. Charles. I'm just curious if you'd had the opportunity to practice current ground uh, meditation observations and what your thoughts are of such a practice, if we could duplicate it here in the supposedly clean West might be helpful for us. Yeah. Our, you know, in, in, 
Thailand, the first monastery I went to, Wat Pananachat, uh, I they burned their bo- the bodies out on a funeral pier, and all the monks gather and just watch the body go up in flame, and the fat sizzle away, and the body char. It's they have such a wholesome relationship to the body and death in Thailand. The people gather, they uh, cremate the body, um, they remember, you know, the person. In the West, we have such a strange relationship. We pump it full of chemicals, see it for a brief second, dress it up, and put it in a box so it won't decay. It's so strange. You know, there is a there is a company called Earth Funerals that will take the body and compost it. And I, I, I know, I and, it's, and it's yeah. only just legal, which is absurd. It's it's like taking this long to get it to be legal for you just to be buried in the earth, you know. So. And we do go to autopsies in Thailand. That's an accepted thing. So I think it's useful. In the West, it's very hard. Um, if you come across a piece of roadkill, you can always go look at it every now and again. Um, or you can find some pictures of some dead bodies. And when you're calm, uh, look at them, see what happens. I wish there's more resources, Charles, but uh, there's just not. Okay, we have a little bit. Oh. Someone asked in the question, I want to use body contemplation to deal with lust. Should I start with the concentration or go straight to the guts? (laughs) Well phrased, Justin. I'd say it couldn't hurt to go straight to the guts. Give it a try in a meditation. Um, It's useful to have some simple phrases or imaginings available. Like if lust is coming up towards a coworker, a friend, someone it's not appropriate for, um, or you find you're just looking at someone as an object of sexual desire where, and not as a person, you know, just consider splitting open the, the skin and just looking at their skull. I mean, the skull looks the same on men and women. It's not that sexy. Uh, and I know this sounds intense, but this is just a veil. Like, what do you got to lose? It's just the skin. Like it lets you see people's hearts, not in the literal sense. Um, But so I'd say it's useful to find a certain image that works for you when you need it as like a break the glass thing when you need to bring it into daily life. But in general, I would try to cultivate it during meditation. Um, It can be a samatha object too. The word bones, if you're a greed type, that can actually be a very powerful calming at the same time. I think we have time for one more question, but only one, if people have anything, and then I'll have to pass it to Rob. Would I... Okay, good. Okay. Um, did I... Did these... I don't know how to ask if they landed uh, all right for folks, but I, I hope they did. And... Um, if not, just hold them lightly and yeah, good luck. Rob, back to you. It's been good to see you all. <laughs>